morning. Our reading today is going to be, if I turn this upside down here, our reading today is from Matthew 4. Was that a, a, the first hymn that we sang about praises to the Lord? It just fills, uh, fills me with such hope and love when I hear and sing praises to the Lord. That's what it's about, isn't it? Just to, to be here today in fellowship and, and praise the Lord. Let Him know that we love Him and we know His Word. We're following it the best we can. And He's there to guide us with the Spirit. What a blessing. So we'll read Matthew 4 this morning. Then when Jesus led up the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward at hunger. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, man that the stone be made bread. But he answered and said, This is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taking him up into the holy city and set, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up to a exceedingly high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. Saith unto him, All these things I will give you, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and only him, and only serve. And him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil laid him, and the whole angels came and ministered to him. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might fulfill which was spoken by the God Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness shall saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, cast a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and the ship of Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship, and their father followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness, and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went through all sphere in Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers, diseases, and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there he followed great and there followed him great multitudes of people 
Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jerusalem. Now a moment of prayer. Father God, we come this morning, come to you with thanks and praise. As you hear, Lord, we sing our praise and we pray that it's not the words, Lord, it is truly our hearts singing out Lord, we pray, praise you for your love and your grace and mercy as our Creator, as our Savior, as our Savior. You are a lamp to guide our way and are constantly with us. The Holy Spirit is our protector. Thank you, Lord. Give us your word, dear Lord, to carry us, to carry with us, to know and to live by it, to give our pastor to teach and our brothers and sisters to sharpen. Lord, you give us all that we need. You also give us great responsibility to fully use all these things in our lives and to live our lives in your service, Father. Help us, Lord, defeat temptation and stand firmly on your word. Help us maintain strong belief and faith and always follow the cause. We know, Father, what great love and peace falls in us when we yield to your word. We know the mystery that comes with knowing. The only reason we don't follow, Lord, is because of ourselves, our weaknesses. We thank you, Lord, for your strength and God is in We ask you that, that you would be with Howard and Howard and Carolyn this morning, Lord, rejoice with others in our family and outside that are in need, Father. And mostly, Lord, for those who don't know you, that they may come at some point in their lives and have us cross their path and be plan to see what you help them. We thank you for all this work that's unfolding in Christ's name. Hi, Fred. This is Mr. Kids from Junior Church. I'm going to go ahead and ask for one of the questions.
I want to have you turn to where our scripture was read this morning, to Matthew chapter 4, if you will, please. Share some thoughts with you. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about a little incident that I had uh, a few years ago. I have a, an unwritten rule that I've lived by, and that is never buy anything under pressure. You know, uh, don't give in to the sales pitch. And uh, I pretty much kept that, but there, there was an occasion a few years ago when we needed a second vehicle really bad. And so I, I fudged a little bit, and I bought a used vehicle under pressure, and I have lived to regret that decision. I'm telling you. Uh, it was a lemon, and we had to pour a lot of money into it just to get it to, uh, to function for us for a little while. But anyway, the moral of the story is uh, you better put things to the test, especially big things like that, a vehicle, before you purchase them. Uh, pay the 40 bucks and get the car facts so you know what uh, the history of a vehicle is. Perhaps even take it by the mechanic and have him check it out before you put the money down uh, for that vehicle or he will regret your decision. So don't buy stuff under pressure. Make sure it's, it's, uh, it's properly tested, especially if it's a big ticket item that you pay a lot of money for. Well, Matthew chapter 4 is really Jesus being put to the test. Jesus under test in order to prove himself to be the Messiah King that he is presented to be in the book of Matthew. And so I want us to observe how Jesus holds up under severe testing in this temptation that was just read to us in the first 11 verses of this chapter and then how that uh, then puts him in a position to be the one that uh, not only they, but that we can trust. And so I want to look at these uh, passages here in Matthew 4 in those two lights. Number one, I want us to see a tested life. That's Jesus in the temptation. And then secondly, because he, of course, passed with flying colors, we might say, I want us to see, secondly, a trusted life, a life that you can trust in, a life that has proved himself to be who the Scripture says he is, and thus trustworthy for every individual, not only then, now, forever. And so, after we have word of prayer, I want us to look at this a little more closely. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the privilege that we have once again of being able to worship you. You alone are worthy of our worship. You're the only one that we can turn to. You're the only one that we really have in heaven. You're the only one that, if we're honest today, that we want here on this earth. Lord, would you meet with us today in a very real way that your presence would not only be a theological truth that we accept, but a, a practical manifestation of the living God right here in our midst. I pray that you would give us the kind of spiritual ears that would be listening and that you would use it to bring about the change necessary in individual lives, whether it be a salvation by the power of God through the gospel, whether it be sanctification through that same gospel that works 
to as as that uh, that two-edged sword to bring about that uh, refinement and that uh, maturity and that growth that would please you. So, Spirit of God, we're asking you to speak this morning. We're trusting you. You're that blessed promised power of Pentecost that we can take both as listeners and as messengers and uh, ask and trust that you will undertake for us and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Alright. So, just prior to the temptation, Jesus underwent that baptism. Remember that? It's the closing verses of chapter 3. Remember how that he went down into the water? John the baptizer, he was struggling with the fact that Jesus would be baptized by him. He said, you don't need to be baptized because remember what John's baptism really indicated? It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism that indicated that in order for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven, that person had to individually repent and evidence that repentance. And John knew that Jesus was the sinless Son of God. Why would he need to be baptized? And Jesus said, suffer to be so. Let it happen because this is all part of fulfilling Jesus, the Father's voice, and then the Spirit of God takes the form of a dove and lands on the head of Jesus. And that is a perfect picture of fulfillment of Isaiah 61, where Jesus is the one, the Messiah, in whom the Spirit of God has anointed him for the ministry that he was about to undertake. And so, in his baptism, he's fulfilling all righteousness. He is the anointed one. And that is the basis, then, for his temptation. Listen to me. It says in that verse, if you you caught it in verse 1, that Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Mark says he was compelled by the Spirit of God. Luke tells us that he was not only led by the Spirit of God into temptation, but he was filled with the Spirit of God when he was tempted. I want you to understand the fact that uh, he was facing the enemy. He was facing Satan himself. And he was facing uh, Satan not using his divine power but rather depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit that led him and filled him as he was facing this temptation. In fact, he, being a human, a man, yet at the same time God, which we cannot fully explain, as a man, he was very weak at that moment. He had not eaten for 40 days. So you can imagine the weakened a physical condition that he was in. And so in his weakness, as a man, he had to depend upon the Lord. He had to depend upon the Spirit, just like you and I. Look, Jesus' temptation is a prime example for every single believer. But it isn't if he was depending upon the fact that he was God in order to defeat the devil in that temptation. 
Only if he is depending upon the Holy Spirit, which is what we have when we face uh, satanic and demonic temptation, can he be a proper example for us. I would explain it this way. If a swimmer wants to set some type of a record and see if he can break the world record as to how far a human being can swim, that swimmer may also recognize the fact that, you know what, the, the possibility is that I'm going to need to be rescued. And so he would have a boat uh, following along far enough behind him so as not to interfere with the swim. Just in case he got cramps or something and, and had to be rescued out of the water. Think of this way. Jesus faced that temptation from Satan as a human being just like you and I, but the possibility of him ever sinning was, uh, uh, was really an impossibility because behind him, so to speak, like the boat, was his divinity. He was the divine Son of God. He did not depend upon that boat. If a swimmer breaks that world record without being rescued by that boat, he did it. In, his, in the strength that he had. Jesus faced the temptation of Satan in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit of God and did not tap into the fact that he was God in order to overcome. If that, again, was the case, he would be no example for you and I. My point being is simply this, that you can face the same devil and the same kind of temptation, which is really a test case of every form of temptation that is common to man. The way that the devil tempted Jesus. And you can do it successfully if you will depend upon the Holy Spirit. The same way Jesus did. He was a man that was empowered by the Spirit of God in order to defeat his enemy. Notice where this took place. This temptation took place in the wilderness, in the desert. Reminds me of the nation of Israel. Remember, for 40 years, they were in the desert. They faced a lot of temptations. They failed a lot of times as a result. Here is Jesus, the Messiah King of Israel. He's the true Israelite. He's the true Israel. He's going to prove himself to be that in his success in defeating the devil in this temptation. Mark says that he was also in the wilderness with wild beasts. In other words, he is completely trusting God, even in the face of danger, to keep him. And that's key, that no matter what we face, if we are depending upon the Lord, you can trust him to keep you, you can trust him to enable you to be victorious and uh, to bring you through. Now, there are three different angles that the tempter, that is Satan, used in tempting Jesus. And uh, you can trust the Lord because you know that he cares for you. But what Satan is tempting Jesus in is basically this. You can't, you can't trust God because he doesn't have your best interests in mind. It's the same, same temptation that he used with Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it really is a temptation to act independent of God because you can't really trust him. To be rebellious against God. 
But again, I want to remind you that the same resources that Jesus used, have that you have available to you. You, if you're a believer, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and you can depend upon His fullness to empower you in temptation, to defeat those temptations. Number two, He used the Word of God. You have that too. You have not just the Old Testament that Jesus had. You have the Old and New Testament. You have the full Scripture available to you. So you have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God just like that. Let's look at the first temptation of verses 3 and 4, where the tempter, Satan, comes to him and said, Remember, he's hungry. Forty days. He had fasted. He said, If you be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. It's a temptation really to depend upon yourself instead of depending upon God. You make it happen. And I want to say something that I hope registers with you this morning, and that is this. In the first temptation, it's really a temptation in which you have to understand, and we have to understand as believers, that dependence upon our God must be supreme to exercising our independence. Put in another way, dependence on God trumps self-dependence or independence is what he's uh, being tempted here about. There's a crucial reference that Jesus uses to counter this temptation in verse 4. He says, it is written, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the context there is a, a reference to a time when Israel, the second generation, the new generation of Israelites, the old generation, died off in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Their children now are on the verge of entering that land that was promised to Israel. And so you have a second giving of the law, a reiteration of that law to them in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses warns them and says, when you enter into that land, it's going to be like you never could have imagined. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to eat the fruit of vines that you didn't plant. You're going to have plenty you're going to have more than, uh, than you could imagine. So when you get there, be careful. Be careful that all of, these, all of this goodness and all of this that comes from a land described as a land flowing with milk and honey, that that doesn't steal your heart. That uh, you don't become then complacent toward God. And so he, he tells them, don't live by bread alone but rather live by everything that comes from God. And what he's referring to there is not merely that the spiritual is more important than the material. That's true. But basically, he is challenging them, who will you trust in your life? Who do you put the most faith in? Who do you depend upon the most? It's a challenge of God-dependence versus self-will. Devising your own way. Depending upon your own way. You remember Jesus when he was 
telling the disciples for the first time that he was going to go up to Jerusalem and he was going to be, he's going to suffer and be crucified, but the third day he would rise again. Peter stopped him and said, no, don't let, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, you don't understand the things of God. You're too focused on the, uh, on a human viewpoint. And so, in Deuteronomy 8.3, that famous verse, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word, that same verse, he teaches uh, the Israelites also why God allowed the, the, the people of Israel in that wilderness wanderings of those 40 years to be humbled as they were. And to be hungry at times as they were. Even though he, he fed them with heavenly bread, with manna, he allows his people to suffer humbling circumstances and difficulties. And even unmet necessities, they, they were hungry in order to test their faith in him and to teach them that God alone is our source of everything and our sustenance for all of our life, for all of our needs. That's exactly what Paul picks up on when he says, I've learned in whatever condition I'm in to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, who, who infuses his strength. He's the source and the sustenance of everything that I have need of. So temptation number one is simply this. It's a temptation to depend upon yourself instead of God. To work it out your way. To see what you can do to make things happen instead of wait and depend upon God and see His way of provision. The second temptation is in verses 5 to 7. The devil then takes them up into the holy city, that's Jerusalem. He sits him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is uh, about 450 feet in the air in the southwest corner of uh, the, the, the temple compound overlooking the Kidron Valley. And he said uh, to, to him, If thou be the Son of God, verse 6, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Now, Satan knows the Bible. He can quote scripture. That's kind of scary. That's dangerous. Satan quoting scripture? You know, sometimes people use scripture to justify wrong positions that they take, wrong things that they do, and yet they have Bible verse for it. What's very crucial to understand here in Satan quoting scripture is that it is out of context for one thing. And secondly, when you take a scripture out of context, it then becomes a pretext to support anything that you want to do. Anything that you want to, uh, to believe. And so he is using the scripture for his own personal advantage, Satan is. And he is tempting Jesus to test the Father. To get the Father to do what Jesus wants done. Jesus knew the Father's plan. And he was seeking to follow the Father's plan. And Satan's just saying, hey, do it your way instead of God's way. It really is 
you take over and you be sovereign instead of surrendering. And here's the point. Your surrender to God is the most important thing and it trumps your sovereignty in your life. Your surrender trumps your sovereignty. And that's what the, the, the temptation is to control God so that you can do what you want to do. And uh, he takes the scripture and he quotes it right out of context. He wants Jesus to, to manipulate God so that God would use his power in order to do Jesus' purpose. In other words, it is your way versus God's way. And the context of Psalm 91 is very interesting. We're not going to turn there, but if you turn, I think this is the 11th verse that uh, Satan is quoting from. And if you look at that 11th verse, you'll find that Satan deliberately misquoted Psalm 91.11 by deleting a crucial phrase. In that uh, quote, he left out the phrase, He shall keep thee in all my ways. In other words, God's ways. So God's protection, if it's going to be experienced, must be experienced under the sovereignty of God's direction. You can't have God's protection unless you're submitting to God's direction. That make sense? And so there is a surrender to God that always trumps our personal sovereignty. Jesus then quotes another scripture in verse 7. He said, It is written, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In that uh, context that Jesus is quoting from in Deuteronomy chapter 6 again, that's the great passage. That's the chapter that the, that, that the Jewish people get the Shema from. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, strength. That's the passage. And uh, then, going down there, he, he talks to them about when they get into the land, that they wouldn't tempt God like their forefathers tempted God in the in the desert, in the wilderness. You remember when they got to Rephidim, they got so thirsty that, that uh, they began to say, you know, is God among us or not? Is God really with us or not? And that's what he meant when he says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And he counters that uh, pretext that Satan used, and he warns this new generation that is on the verge of entering into the promised land, don't do like your fathers did. Don't try to control God to get God to use his power to supply what you want when you want it. Surrender to the Lord. You are here to be surrendered to God and not try to manipulate and use God when and as you think you need God in any given situation. That's the second temptation. The third one, found in verses 8 to 10, 
We pick it up in verse 8. The devil taking them up into an exceeding high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these things will I give Satan talking to the Son of God. All these things will I give thee if thou wilt bow down or fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Get thee hence, or get behind me, Satan. Same thing he said to Peter. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Third temptation. I say is this. That worship, worship of the one true and living God is totally more important than your wants. Worship has to trump your wants. The worship of God. It's Satan's desire to be worshipped. I mean, if we could go back to Isaiah chapter 14 and look at the 14th verse, you know what he wants? He wants to be like the Most High God. He wants to be worshipped just like God is worshipped. You understand, that's what, that's what he's been about all along. All through this millennium, he has been desiring to usurp the place of God so that he alone would be the object of creation's worship, of man's worship. That's his one aim. And he seeks to get that by seducing people. By seducing us from worshiping the true and living God. The God that made us and made us for really one main purpose, and that is that we worship Him. Satan is trying to seduce mankind from worshiping the Lord. And he does it in different ways. He uses the allurements of the, of the world. He uses that, 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 uh, that sinful bent that, that's in us to take our hearts away from the Lord. And he deludes us. He says, if you'll fall down and worship me, you'll have everything that you've come to obtain. You'll have it just by a simple act of bowing your knee to me. In doing that, Jesus, of course, would bypass the suffering of the cross. And so basically, he's tempting Jesus to take the easy way out. Hey, fulfill your purpose. It's, it's, it's good. You have a good purpose? Fulfill your purpose your way instead of God's way. But worship has to trump our wants. And so Satan is defeated here. Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy 16, or, or 6 rather, this time verse 13, uh, when he says what he does in that 10th verse that we've already read. And that's the thing that defeats him. Remember, it's in the context where Jesus is quoted from. It's in the context of loving God supremely. Loving Him with your whole being. Loving the giver more than the gifts that He gives you. The most important thing is not the things that God gives us, but God Himself. Listen, the most important thing in all of life is a personal relationship with the God of heaven. A relationship in which you know that your sins have been forgiven and that you are you, you are the recipient of eternal life. And that's worship. That's what he's talking about here. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 12 to 25, is really the conclusion of this perfectly tested life that has proven himself to be trustworthy uh, 
to enter into ministry. And so what you have happening, beginning in verse 12, is the official beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 3. He, he was tested and proved his worthiness. And then in, in the 12th verse, the official opening of Jesus' ministry. It began with the, as a spirit-filled ministry. Notice what it says here. It says that when he heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into the Galilee. Where had he been? He had been down in Judea. He had been down in the Jerusalem area, but now he is going to go north. He's going to go back to where he was reared. He was going to go back to the Galilee. And it says in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, or, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. To them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung. I want you to note several things about Jesus' ministry. It can be trusted. And number one, it can be trusted because it is Bible-based. Notice, it's the fulfillment of prophecy, uh, we are told in that 14th verse. It's a Bible-based, prophecy-fulfilled ministry that he begins with. It is a light-giving ministry. He talks about the light that comes to the Galilee that formerly was a place of spiritual darkness. It's a Galilee-centered ministry. Galilee became the hub of Jesus' ministry. Interesting to me that Jesus was Judean biologically. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. But he, he was Galilean geographically. He was reared in the city of Nazareth in Lower Galilee. And he had the bulk of his ministry in the Galilee. And of course, very important to realize the fact that, he was, that his ministry is a ministry that calls people to be God-empowered like Him. Yeah. I want you to note that 19th, uh, 19th verse. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And He sees two brethren, Simon, called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were, they were fishermen. And then uh, in verse 20 and 21, He sees two other brothers, he sees James and John. They're, they're fishermen too. They're actually mending their nets with their father. And he says to them, follow me. And immediately they left their ship and they followed him. I want you to note this. Verse 19 says, Jesus, follow me, he said, and I will make you fishers of men. You follow Jesus? I mean, if you truly, genuinely follow the Lord, no doubt about it, you're going to be, you're going to become a fisher of men. You're going to fish for men. What does that mean? I'm sure there's fishermen in this audience here this morning. 
what would it be like? Would you could you really call yourself a fisherman if you fished for 10, 20, 30 years and never caught a single fish? I don't think so. Jesus said, if you genuinely follow me, no doubt about it, you're going to become a fisher of men. You're going to catch men. You know, when you fish for fish, if you catch them, you take them out of their element of life and you break them into the element of death. They die when you take them out of the water. Quite the opposite when you fish for men. When you fish for men, they're already dead in trespass and sin. And when you bring them to Christ, you take them out of death and bring them into life. It's very much more rewarding than catching a trout. You bring them from death to life. And I wonder, if are you a true follower of the Lord? Because if you are, you'll be God-empowered to actually bring people out of the realm of death to Christ into the realm of spiritual life. So you might call yourself a Christian. You might call yourself a Christ follower. But are you really a follower? Because if you're a follower of Christ, He said, I'll make you fishers of men. And maybe you've been saved 5, 10, 20 years. Have you ever brought anyone to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you brought them to life in Christ? And yet, it's a God-empowered ministry because He says, if you follow Me, you're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to have success. And I want you to note also the fact that Jesus is calling people to follow him. He's calling his followers. That is not the normal way that the rabbis in Jesus' day got their disciples, got their Talmudim. They didn't get them by, by calling them. Actually, the way it was done in Jesus' day, a rabbi got his followers by those Followers coming to him and saying, Hey, can I be your disciple? Can I be your follower? The fact that Jesus flipped it around and that he, as the rabbi, took the initiative to call his followers not only shattered the, the, the cultural norm, but it also must have been a tremendous way of encouraging those young men. I believe they were probably about teenagers when he called them. I think it must have been a tremendous encouragement because when he said, follow me, he's saying, you know what? I believe in you. I believe that you can become a fisher of men. And he says that to all of us. If you're a believer, he has called you. You haven't called him, he's called you. And Jesus says it this way in John 15, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That, and have ordained that you should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I will give it to you. That's a wonderful encouragement. It's Messiah choosing his followers. It wasn't the first time that these guys had ever met Jesus. We don't have time to cross-reference this with John chapter 1, but they'd met him before. Now they were to become his true followers. But it, uh, I did want you to also think about the light of his Galilean connected ministry. Jesus' parents were from Galilee. Jesus was reared in Galilee. 
He began his ministry in Galilee, we see here, and the bulk of his ministry was carried out in Galilee. And many Galilean followers, uh, Jesus gathered around him, uh, even women from Galilee. And Jesus, remember, after the resurrection, he met his twelve disciples again, or the twelve, eleven of them then, uh, in Galilee. And it all happened in this segment. Today, the area where Jesus ministered the most is called the Evangelical Triangle. But the Galilee area of Jesus' day was an area about 70 by 40 miles. It uh, had about 200 villages in it. And each of those villages had uh, thousands of people. And really, it came to uh, the fact that in his ministry in the Galilee, and it says he went all over. Look at that uh, 20, I think it's the 25th verse. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee. And uh, he went to, throughout, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. By the way, I've been to the Galilee several times. And I've been to some of the ruins of the ancient synagogues that Jesus would have taught people in, in the Galilee. I mean, you're talking about him reaching millions of people. He would visit, if he would visit, would have visited two villages or towns per day over a period of three months, seven days a week, then he would have reached those 200 villages. And all the people that came to him got healed. Uh, they, uh, they, if they were demonized, they were delivered from that demonic oppression or possession. And uh, he had an extensive ministry, a time-consuming ministry, an exhaustive ministry. And it says that his moving to the Galilee from the south, up north there, and then centering in Capernaum, was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which is Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. Background of that Isaiah prophecy is that in chapter 8, he is saying uh, the Assyrians are going to come into Israel and they are going to capture and destroy the Galilee. They're going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel because of their idolatry. And then in chapter 9, after that destruction, there is the promise that all of that death and all of that darkness is going to be penetrated and invaded by a light. And that light in that ninth chapter of Isaiah turns out to be not something uh, like a, a natural light as the sun, but actually a sun. S-O-N. A child. A child who is named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. He is the light that would shine in the darkness. And, and Matthew is telling us this is the fulfillment. Jesus the Messiah King has come on the scene. And he has burst that darkness. And he is giving life to a people that uh, were dark because of their idolatry and the Assyrian captivity. And now light has come to them. And Jesus says, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, hey, you can't have a kingdom without a king. And basically you say, hey, I'm the king. I'm here. So the kingdom is here. 
design here. But I wanted to close with this thought. And that is that Jesus moving out of Jerusalem area in Judea, which really was the center of religious life in ancient Israel. That's where the temple was. That's where everything religiously was happening. And here's Jesus going way up north to the Galilee. You would think that that was going to, to put him into obscurity. But actually the opposite happened. It propelled him into prom, uh, prominence because the word of his ministry spread like wildfire. And it was significant that he had this ministry in Galilee because, listen, the people down in Jerusalem and Judea, they looked upon the Galileans with contempt. You know why? Because when the Assyrian captivity came, they resettled the whole of Galilee, not only with the Jews that remained, but with uh, conquered people from all over the world. And so you had a mixture of Jew and Gentile in Galilee. And of course, to the Jewish religious leaders there in Jerusalem, Gentiles being unclean, Galilee of the Gentiles was a place that they would not want to go to. And yet that's the place that Jesus chose to be his hub of ministry. It's a picture of what the prophet Isaiah said also, that Jesus would be without comeliness. That there would be, uh, he, he would be in humility and rejected. And yet here he comes with this mighty redemption plan as a light shining in the darkness. In fact, you know what God's plan was for the nation of Israel? That through them, the light of God would go to all the nations on the earth. They failed in that. But the true son, the true Israelite, Jesus, through him, he fulfilled Israel's failure. And he brought that light that Israel was supposed to be in their place. And yet, he was rejected. Reminds me of a famous woman missionary by the name of Gladys Alward. She was greatly used in the country of China. She was born in England in 1902. And one day she was walking down the street in her hometown and she saw a banner that was announcing special missionary meetings in this church. Lord prompted her to go in, and she heard a man speaking about China, and she became convinced that God wanted her to serve as a missionary to China. So she attended the uh, Hudson Taylor's mission uh, training school, but she was not a very good student at all, and she was told that she would not be suitable as a missionary to China. But she was still convinced that it was God's will for her to be a missionary to China. And she went to China on her own. And she sought out uh, a woman that she heard who managed an inn. And with difficulty, Gladys uh, learned the language. She helped that woman there in that inn. And when the woman died, she realized there was no finances to keep it going, and she was forced to find a job to support herself. And there was a, a uh, 
a Chinese government official that was looking for her and sought her out. And he said there has been a law passed that forbidden the practice of foot binding of little baby girls. And would you be willing to go from village to village and make sure that this practice is no longer uh, being done? And she said, I will do that. I will inspect these little girls' feet, but I also want you to know that in every house that I enter to inspect, I will also be sharing the gospel with her. They paid her to do this, and she was able to support herself and keep the end going. And she went to every single village in that district. And many people were saved in each village, and then a church would emerge. In fact, there was a movie made of Gladys Elward's life. It was called The End of Sixth Happiness, and it starred Ingrid Bergman. And after making the movie, Ingrid Bergman looked up Gladys Alward and spoke with her. And I, I don't know, but I heard that as a result of their conversation, that Ingrid Bergman made a profession of faith. An unlikely representative for missions. And yet she surrendered to the Lord and was remarkably used by God. When even the mission board that she had candidated for said she was not suitable for the job. Here's Jesus. He was pushed off. He went up into the Galilee. Looked as if he would never, never make his mark in Israel. And yet it propelled him into a prominent ministry. And, and the light shone in that darkness. I share this to say that God wants to use each one of us in a significant way, but in a different way. You're not me, I'm not you. But God wants to use you. And God wants to be the person that empowers you to be His witness, to be fishers of men, to bring people to Jesus. He wants you to be a successful fisher of men. And it doesn't matter what your educational level is, it doesn't matter what uh, uh, you think your abilities are or what you don't have. God can use you. He can empower you. You'll be surprised. You'll be amazed at what God can do if you'll just surrender to Him and let Him use you. Let's bow our heads a moment. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you today for the opportunity that we've had to open Matthew's Gospel, and I thank you for Jesus' successful passing through that time of testing and temptation. That tested life now is a trusted life. We trust you, Lord. We trust you for who you are and for what you have done. We trust you with our very lives. We do pray that you would challenge our hearts as we seek to carry out the very mission that you've given to each one of us. You said to them, you say to us, you say to all believers, follow me. May we do so. And I will make you to become fishers of men. Make us fishers of men. May we make disciples. 
as you empower us to do so, we trust you to do it through us. No matter who we are, how obscure our life might uh, seem, how insignificant, how little, how inadequate, our sufficiency is in you. You're the source of everything and the sustenance as well. We believe that. We thank you for it. And pray this in Jesus' name. Verse 17 there says that Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and if you have done that if you have repented and put your faith in Christ's work then you can sing with us I am redeemed let's stand and sing I am redeemed 